What's up, 11 o'clock? How are we doing this morning? Hey, well, it is good to be with you. Any Cavalier fans that need a hug at the end of service tonight, we'll have a prayer and encouragement corner for you. Hey, it's good to be with you, whether you're here in the worship center, whether you're one of my rowdy friends over on the ridge, welcome to Rocky Peak. If you're here for the very first time, special welcome to you. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to jump into our time of teaching. So if you would, open up that program you got on your way in. Inside, there is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. Also, a great tool to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting to remember. I'm going to pray. We're going to dive right in. Jesus, we have gathered this morning. This is a gathering of your saints because we want more of you. Jesus, I think about the Apostle Paul, and often he would pray to Christ followers and their churches that they would experience more of your presence. They would experience more of your character. They would experience more of your power, more of your transformation. And so here we are this morning echoing the same prayer. We want more because you are a God that gives more. And so Jesus, calm our minds, calm any distractions. Jesus, calm our hearts and let us be receptive and ready as we open up your precious word, which is living and active, which is the word that changes our lives, Jesus. Let us be ready for what you have for us this morning. Father, as the communicator, as I often pray, let me become less, let me fade into the background and let you as our Jesus, as our Lord, as the Christ, become much, much Lord, much, much more. Father, you are already speaking. The commitment we're making as a church is we are ready to listen. In your son's name, everybody said. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for the last nine weeks. Can you believe that? For the last nine weeks, called Pursuing God One-on-One. And if you're here for the first time, we're really thankful that you're here. This is an exciting time to be joining us here at Rocky Peak. And so the heart of this series is something we say often here at Rocky Peak, that God has an epic vision for your life. And God's vision for your life is much bigger than simply going to heaven when you die. That God's vision is that each and every one of us would be transformed at the core of our character to become more and more like his precious son, Jesus. And so what we see is that to experience this transformation, we have to be in the presence of God. And there's many different ways to do that. We're doing it right now this morning, being in a large group, we can experience the presence of God. We can experience the presence of God in smaller groups, like our life groups that meet throughout the week. But the number one place, the most important place to pursue and experience the presence of God is in our one-on-one relationship with Him. And that's what this whole series has been all about. It's all about developing a rhythm of regular one-on-one relationship with God and pursuing his presence. And so this week, what's going to happen is the life group study that accompanies it, we're going into the last week of it. And the focus and the heart behind this last week of study is what happens next. What's the next step for you now that pursuing God is ending? Because here are hearts, this journey of pursuing God, in fact, this journey that started with Rooted back in January at the new year was meant to be a catalyst for a new rhythm in each of our lives. See, our heart and God's heart is that our pursuit of him doesn't end because this study is ending. But the hope is that we caught some new vision, a fresh vision. The hope is also over these last two series that we have got some, some, new, uh, some new practicals. We have been exposed to new ways to pursue God one-on-one. And as a reminder of what the foundation of the series has been, there in the front of your note sheet, I put a great quote from Michael. If we want to truly know God, we need to invest significant time in the relationship. If we don't, it will dramatically impact our spiritual growth. And so as we continue on, as we look to the summer and the months and the years beyond, the question is how do we continue to invest significant time in this relationship? Michael has used the analogy, now that the series is over, it's time for the training wheels to come off. And so what does that look like in our lives? Well, probably one of the key and most primary ways that looks like is by engaging in what's called the spiritual disciplines. And so that's the topic on the table this morning. I want to unpack what are these spiritual disciplines and why should we engage with them as Christ followers? So there in your note sheet, if you're following along, you got a section titled Spiritual Disciplines, A New Vision. 
And so the reason why we need a new vision is because many of us have often have a misunderstanding of what the spiritual disciplines are and why we do them. And so as I often do, let's go ahead and talk about our honest starting point. When it comes to the spiritual disciplines, how do you approach them? How do you view them? It's my guess that many of us, we either are indifferent or we have a negative view when it comes to the spiritual disciplines. And when I've examined my own life to try to understand why that is, what I've come to know is that that word itself, discipline, throws me for a loop. That word is an intimidating word, isn't it? In fact, think about just language in general. There are certain words that when you hear them, they produce a positive reaction, right? Words like hope, words like love, words like friendship, words like bacon. You hear them... (laughs) and your feeling is sheer joy. And then there are also words that when you hear them, what they provoke is an immediate negative reaction. And I think for many of us, the word discipline provokes a negative reaction because for many of us, our experience with that word is somebody telling us we need discipline. And another way of saying it is somebody telling us there is something wrong with you. You know, I think about the principal in the Back to the Future movies, that one of the ways he antagonized the students was by calling them slackers, that they needed discipline because they weren't good enough. And for us, that's been our experiences. The people in our life have weaponized this word. You need discipline because there's something wrong with you. You need discipline because you are missing the mark. You need discipline because you are not good enough. And when we view discipline as that, then we bring that definition into our relationship with God. And so we hear this concept of the spiritual disciplines. And rather than being a beautiful act, it causes us to shudder because we picture God going, you're not good enough. You're not a good enough Christ follower. There's something wrong with you. You want to spend time with me? That's not going to happen. Here are the disciplines. You need to do these if you and I are going to have any type of relationship. X, Y, and Z. Become a better person first. Then we can have communion. And so for many of us, that's our starting point, and we need to remove that filter because in God's views, the spiritual disciplines are not a negative, but they are something that is truly beautiful. And so we need to understand spiritual disciplines through the lens of our new identity, who we now are because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. So there on your note sheet, I put a key word for us to understand the disciplines, and that key word is this, disciple. disciple. We pursue spiritual disciplines because we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear it again. We pursue spiritual disciplines because as Christ followers, we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're going to have a new vision for the spiritual disciplines, it begins here with a new vision of our identity in Jesus. See, Christ follower, understand what happened when you gave your life to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance. When you realize that Jesus is exactly who he says he is when you realize that he is king, he is creator, he is father, when you realize that because of our sin and rebellion, we have walked away from his kingdom, but when we realize that because of his work through the cross and through the empty tomb, he has restored the path to us, he forgives us of our sins, and what happens in that moment is he doesn't make us slightly better people. He completely transforms our very identity. Because of Jesus, we went from death to life. Because of Jesus, we're going to talk about this later on, we go from darkness to light. Because of Jesus, we go from being orphans to sons and daughters. And because of Jesus, we are now disciples of his. And not only is that a new paradigm in our identity, but that's also a new paradigm in how we view disciple. Because there's many of us that view this title of disciple as being this upper echelon, this third tier of Christianity that only the best of the best get there. 
See, there's a lot of us that we have a false tiered view of what it means to be a Christ follower that we would say in the first tier is all of us, all the regular Christ followers, the ones that are imperfect but are trying their best. And then on this next tier, we put on a pedestal leaders and pastors and elders. And I want to be very clear about something. The only difference between you and me is a microphone. Aside from that, I am learning and growing alongside of you. But then we have this third tier where this is where we put the disciples. These are the men and women who are walking on water. These are the men and women that have an answer to every question anybody could ask. These are the men and women that know everything there is to know, have entire halves of the Bible memorized, that their prayers are epic. They're on their knees 18 hours a day going to the Lord. And what I mean by that is we realize, well, that could never be me. I could never be a disciple. So let's stop and understand God's vision for your life. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are a disciple. You are a disciple of Jesus. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for years and decades, whether you gave your life to Jesus in the parking lot on the way in, which would be awesome, you are a disciple of Jesus. And what it means to be a disciple is not perfection, is not this level of spiritual superhero-ness. It means you are a student. See, in the ancient world, to be discipled by someone was to be their apprentice, would be another word of it. In the ancient world, to be a disciple meant more than simply learning knowledge about their craft, but it meant to learn to live as they lived, to do what they do. And so as disciples of Jesus, this is that epic vision we've been talking about. We are students of Jesus the King. He is our teacher and what he teaches us to do is to live life as he lived it, to do what he did, to be on mission as he is, to be transformed in our character. And so with that vision, that is how we view the spiritual disciplines. See, if you've been with us in the journey of pursuing God, one of the first things we address with the fact that when it comes to pursuing God, if we don't have an honest and a compelling answer to the question of why, we're not going to do it. If we don't have a good answer to why, why am I going to pursue God? Why am I going to make this time in my schedule and devote my life to it? And it's true when it comes to the spiritual disciplines. So we need to see the why is this is who we've been created to be. We are disciples of Jesus. And the spiritual disciplines are not mere rules, are not mere, are not mere activities we do to get Christian gold stars, but they are what lead to transformation. And in fact, that leads me to your second fill-in right there. Discipleship leads to transformation. I love this quote that you're going to read this week by John Orberg there in your note sheet. It defines what a spiritual discipline is. It's any activity that can help me gain power to live life as Jesus taught and modeled it. In other words, it's any activity that leads me to transformation. And so in the study, we've looked at some of these key spiritual disciplines. We've looked at how we are taught and transformed by spending time in the Bible, not just by reading it, but by learning how to observe, how to interpret, learning how to apply it, by learning how to memorize it, by seeing it as more than a book, but as the, as the place where God has breathed his words and his authority into it. Throughout the study, we've looked at the spiritual discipline of prayer, that prayer is more than a simple transaction or an emergency call when everything's falling apart, but that prayer is relationship in which we know our teacher, we are grown by it, that prayer is partnership in which we partner with Jesus to do the work of the kingdom. Last week, we talked about how prayer is two-way communication, how part of prayer is learning to listen to the voice of Jesus as he's leading us. There are other spiritual disciplines. There's the discipline of worship, 
There's the discipline of serving, using our gifts both in the church and out. There's the discipline of journaling. We've touched on that a little bit throughout the study. This week, we're gonna look at the spiritual discipline of fasting, and we could go on and on and on. But again, these disciplines are not an end to themselves, but they are a means in which we are taught and we experience transformation in the presence of Jesus. That is what is intended by the spiritual disciplines, that as disciples, we take part in these disciplines to experience the presence and transformation. I love a couple quotes there in your note sheet. One from this week's study, the whole point of practicing spiritual disciplines is to empower us, underline that, there's that theme again, is to empower us to become more like Christ. Second quote from one of my favorite authors, the late great Dallas Willard, spiritual disciplines are not primarily for the solving of behavioral problems, though that is one of their effects. The aim of disciplines in the spiritual life, and specifically in the following of Christ, is the transformation. Would you underline that? The transformation of the total state of the soul. And so as we as a church look beyond the pursuing God study, as we look at the spiritual disciplines as being our primary tools for continuing this rhythm of relationship, we look to them as the pathway to the presence and the transformation that we will experience within the presence of God. And so what I wanna do is I wanna go to the New Testament, to a letter that the Apostle Paul writes, and I wanna look at how he gives this encouragement and this charge to one of the early churches. See, he's acknowledging that these Christ followers have been transformed by Jesus, that Jesus has been the catalyst and they're learning and they're growing. And so what he does is he charges them to take action and to continue in their own one-on-one lives to develop this rhythm and to experience more of Jesus. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to 1 Thessalonians in the second half of our Bible, the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, as you're turning there, let me, let me fill in a little bit of context to add to the scene. So this is a letter by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a group of mostly Gentile believers, meaning non-Jewish, that are living in and around the ancient city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica at this time was one of the biggest and most key cities for the Roman Empire. It's located in what would now be northern Greece. In fact, today, in its place, there is a uh, city with a very similar name in there. And so Paul is in this letter addressing some questions that this growing church has for him. And we're coming into the middle of a discourse that he's addressing some honest questions they had about the end times, about the return of Jesus, about what to expect, about what's gonna happen, but also they begin to ask him the question, when is this gonna take place? In fact, there's many of us that have wondered the same thing, haven't we? And so what we're gonna see Paul do is he's gonna answer their question, but in a way he's gonna teach them and take them to a deeper teaching in that this question isn't wrong, but we can often get distracted in the where and the when, and rather we're gonna see him answering it in the sense that because we know that Jesus is coming back, let's have that impact how we live our life in the here and now. And so with that, let's jump in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, the apostle writes, oh, and by the way, get ready with your pens and your ability to highlight because we're going to mark this passage up. Now, brothers and sisters, about the time and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, underline that, day of the Lord, that's a key concept we're gonna come back to, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse three, while people are saying peace and safety, would you underline this? While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Would you underline that last part? And they will not escape. So let's stop right there. 
So they're asking, when is Jesus coming back? When is the world as we know it gonna end? And so Paul is using Old Testament language. He refers to this event as the day of the Lord. The Old Testament, the Old Testament, specifically the prophets of the Old Testament, often prophesize about a future day of the Lord. It was a day of judgment in which God would return and pour his wrath out on sin. But it was also a day of blessing and restoration for God's people, that this is when God would return to right all the wrongs, to reform the world and to reunite his people to himself. And so in the New Testament, what we see is that the day of the Lord is the return of Jesus. In fact, Paul in other areas of the New Testament will refer to it as the day of the Lord Jesus or simply the day of Jesus. And so they're asking, what is the where and what is the when? Because they want to put this on their schedule, right? They want to be able to plan for this, right? They want to be able to prepare. Now, often for many of us, we want to know when Jesus is coming back so that we have a time frame for when we can start living our lives right. See, let me illustrate it this way. It's like going to the dentist. Now, I need to be careful about what I say because my dentist comes here. But it's like going to the dentist, and here's what I mean by that. We've all been there and done it. We go see the dentist once, maybe twice a year, and we have, what, six months, eight months in between. What do we do the week before our appointment? We start flossing. (laughs) And what are we trying to do? We're trying to convince him we've been doing this the whole time. See, the reality is there's a lot of people that want to know when Jesus is coming back because that gives them a defined reason to, quote, get their act together. If I know this is when Jesus is coming back, then I'll change my life. Then I'll stop living in sin. Then I'll stop doing and doing this. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. See, it's the wrong question. See, we often ask the date and the time. And a quick sidebar, he uses the metaphor a thief in the night, which is a metaphor Jesus uses in Matthew's gospel, which means we don't know. See, over the last 100, 200 years, there have been people in Christian writing that have claimed to have figured it out, that have claimed to have cracked the code. This is when Jesus is coming back. He is coming back October 15th. He is coming back at the millennium. He is coming back after this election. This is what's going to happen. And again, Paul is reminding us the words of Jesus himself. We don't know, but there's a better question to be asked. Rather than when is this going to happen? The question the apostle is teaching us is what is the condition of my heart for when it happens? What is the state of my heart? Is my heart focused on Jesus or something else? And look back at verse 3. I had you underline that phrase, peace and safety, while people are saying peace and safety. And likely this is a political statement that Paul is making See, at this time in history, because of the Roman Empire, there was a period of what's considered relative peace, a ceasing of hostilities. Frankly, because the Roman Empire had conquered anybody that would stand against them. And this period in history is known as the Pax Romana. It was the the peace that is brought to you by the mighty Roman Empire. But the way the Roman Empire spun this propaganda was that you have peace, meaning you citizens have value, meaning, and worth. Your lives finally have meaning because of the Roman Empire. In fact, in the city of Thessalonica itself, there was a temple that was erected to Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. It was worshiping their divinehood because it was inscribed that these are the sons of the gods. And it's a false god. It's a false idol. The Roman Empire is not going to bring salvation. And so Paul uses that metaphor of a woman not being able to escape labor pains that when Jesus comes back, he will destroy false gods. He will destroy false idols. And so Paul is bringing this up because Christ followers, we need to ask ourselves a question in the here and now when it comes to peace. Again, I'm not saying in absence of hostility or conflict, but peace meaning value, worth, meaning, are we searching for our peace in something other than Jesus? Because if we are, 
we are depending on a false God that will be destroyed. And so here, Paul's heart in this, Jesus is the only place we will find true peace. I, on my own, cannot lead myself to peace. My friendships, my relationships, however good they are, they will not lead me to true peace. My pastor will not lead me to true peace. My career will not lead me to true peace. My money and my things will not lead me to true peace. My ambition and my desires will not lead me to true peace. My social clubs and my communities will not lead me to true peace. My politics and my government and my political party will not lead me to true peace. The only thing that will lead me to true peace is the presence of Jesus Christ. And that peace, that presence is regardless and defiant of our circumstances. Peace doesn't simply mean there is no conflict. Peace is regardless of our circumstance. We find value and worth in Jesus even if everything is falling apart. And so Paul is asking us to look at the condition of our hearts. Are we dependent on Jesus or are we looking elsewhere for our peace? And then he goes on, verse four. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. Would you underline that? And hear me very clearly. These words are talking to you. Christ follower, you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Verse five, you are all children of the light, underline that, and children of the day, underline that as well. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Would you underline those two words, awake and sober. And so what Paul is doing is he's again casting vision for who we now are because of Jesus. He's using common, common Old Testament and New Testament biblical metaphors about darkness and light. It's common to see darkness in the Bible referring to people who don't yet know Jesus. It's a reminder that Jesus saved us from the darkness, and now we walk as children of the light or children of the day. And what I love about this is he doesn't put qualifiers on it, does he? He doesn't say, you are a child of light as long as you've been walking with Jesus for at least a year. He doesn't say, you are a child of light as long as you don't deal with temptations. You are a child of light as long as you haven't had any colossal sins and setbacks in your life. No, no, again, it's what we talked about with being a disciple. If you have given your life to Jesus, this is your identity. And see, Christ followers, we need to understand that when it comes to growing spiritually, when it comes to developing a one-on-one relationship, have you noticed that often the person that is least convinced that we can do it is ourselves? And do you see that the person that is the most convinced that you can do this is Jesus himself? He knows you. He wired you. He knows exactly what you're capable of. That is why throughout the Bible, Paul is often reiterating our new identity because of children. We are, because because of Jesus, we are children of the light. To be a child does not mean that we have any type of deficiency, but in this context, to be a child means that we are participants. We are part of the kingdom that has come, what is being inaugurated by Jesus. And he talks about as children of the light, you're not gonna be surprised when Jesus comes back. And what he means is that as Christ followers, he's not gonna tell us the time and date. He's not gonna just download it to our calendars one day. What he's gonna say is because as Christ followers, we are regularly pursuing the presence of God that when he does come back, it is going to be an extension of what we've already been doing because we're his children. And then he calls us to action. He says to be awake and sober. And he continues, verse seven, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Would you underline that last part? Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And so he continues the metaphor and he uses a cultural example when it comes to day and night. So let me unpack this a little bit. See, in our culture today, going out at night can often be seen as a positive thing. It's a fun thing. We like it. I've always enjoyed being a night person. I enjoy being out in the night. In fact, just this past Friday, my wife and I had a date night. We went down to Grand Central Market in downtown LA. We found some amazing pupusas and platanos. And if you don't know what those are, Google them because they will change your life because they filled the Central American heart with a lot of joy. We were walking around LA at night. There is hubbub. There are people. There are people enjoying themselves. There are light. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And many of us have had experiences like that. In the ancient world, that is not how they viewed the night. There was no illumination. The night was viewed as dangerous. The night was viewed as treacherous. In fact, often in the ancient world, when people spoke of the night, they spoke of it fearfully. And so again, Paul is using this as a metaphor that we are not part of the night any longer that we are not part of the kingdom of darkness. And so he says, continue to work out your identity as the kingdom of light. And so he says, put on this armor, this image, this military image. Many of us know Paul talking about this to the Ephesians, but this image actually begins with the prophet Isaiah when he talks about putting on your armor. Think about it. Your armor is something you wear. Your armor is what protects you when you go out into the war. Your armor armor is also what identifies what side you're on. The armor tells people whose kingdom you support. And if you look back at it, what is our armor? He says faith. He says love. He says salvation. Our armor is the character of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. And the call is to wear it. And so do you see how this applies to us as disciples? That as we continue to grow, as we continue to be taught, as we continue to be transformed by the character of Jesus, then what happens is our armor gets stronger. What happens is we are prepared to fight not the way the world fights, with hate, anger, and division, but we fight through the character of Jesus, love, hope, power, unity. We go out prepared because we have been in training for this. The character of Jesus is what we wear. And then finally, in verse nine, he celebrates Jesus. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Would you underline that? May live together with him. Now what's amazing is that Paul uses asleep again, but in this verse, it's in a different context. In this verse, it's referring to people who have physically died. And do you catch what he's saying? That the power of Jesus is such that death is not even a barrier to him reuniting his family. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And so his charge is to the church to be the church. What it means to be the church is we are a gathering of disciples who are learning from the word and are learning from one another to encourage and to build each other up is to encourage each other in our growth as disciples. That is the purpose of the church. And in fact, one of the beautiful pictures of this here at Rocky Peak is in our life groups. The reason why we are a church of life groups is that every week, We have a smaller group of adults that are gathering as disciples to learn more and more what it means to be taught, to be led, and to be transformed by the risen Jesus. And so again, the heart of this passage, God has started a good work. Continue experiencing that. And that applies to what we're talking about. We can continue that through the spiritual disciplines.
And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is as we engage with the disciplines, there are two things we're going to need. There are two things, two truths we need to embrace and two changes that need to happen in our lives to do this and to do this well. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Engaging the Disciplines, and your first fill-in is this. Pursuing the disciplines requires intentional effort. Pursuing the disciplines requires intentional effort. In fact, that's been a core foundation of this whole series, hasn't it? That to develop a rhythm of relationship, to regularly be in the presence of God, it doesn't just happen. If we take the words of that quote on the front cover, if we are people who are going to invest significant time in our relationship with God, it is going to require intentionality. Again, this is part of God's vision for our lives. His vision for us as disciples is not to be stagnant disciples. His vision for us is not to be meh or apathetic disciples. His vision for us is to be great disciples. And that means to be great students. And how we become great students is by applying intentionality when it comes to our pursuit of God in our schedule, in our priority, and in many different ways. And for me, I got to be honest, when I think about that, if I'm going to apply a new level of intentionality, the first thing I need to acknowledge is my ego that keeps me from doing so. And for me, and maybe you can relate, my ego can often keep me from doing so because my ego is convinced that I can do something well by winging it. Think about what it means to wing it. It means that you show up with little to no preparation and you believe you can still succeed at it. And in fact, there's many areas in my life in which I have struggled with that arrogance, thinking that I can wing it and do just as good of a job than if I was intentional about it. I think back to my life as an actual student, as a college student, I used to pride myself on the, th- on the false truth that I could write an excellent paper 15 minutes before it was due. And I was brought back to reality very quickly when the paper came back with a big red D minus on it. See, the reality is it's not just in our relationship with God, but we fall into this sinful temptation of winging it in all of our other core relationships. We wing it with our friendships. We wing it with our spouses. We wing it with our kids. We wing it as sons and daughters. We wing it in our educational institutions. We wing it in our jobs. And again, we try to pride ourselves. I am really good at winging it. The reality is no, we're not. Because when we wing it in a relationship, the relationship never goes deeper than surface level. It never gets deep. It never gets genuine. And understand something, the way we approach our relationship with Jesus, which is our ultimate relationship, is going to impact how we approach all others. If we approach Jesus with a I'm going to wing it attitude, then what's gonna happen is that is going to overflow and we will approach our most important relationships with that same attitude. But if we approach Jesus with a new level of intentionality, then that will then overflow and he will then teach us because we are disciples how to approach our other relationships with a new level of intentionality as well. I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in your note sheet in his letter to the Ephesians. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, that's the work of Jesus, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on, underline this, that is our responsibility, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, we see through Paul's writings, God's vision. Jesus took the initiative to save us. Jesus did the heavy lifting of transforming us, of removing our sin, of making us into brand new creation. And now my opportunity is to follow his example, to continue this, to continue this pursuit of the presence, and to then put on the character of God. In this verse, it calls it righteousness and holiness. And that's not going to 
happen unless I learn to become intentional in my schedule, intentional in my priorities, intentional in my spiritual disciplines. Now I know there are some of you out there going, I want this, but my life is crazy. My life is a whirlwind. I need to get the kids to 20 different places. Work is really busy. This is going on in my life or this is going on with my family. And many of us have fallen into this trap. I will place intentionality in my life when my life slows down a little bit. Has it happened yet? And some of you are in that same boat going, well, how the heck am I ever going to do this? Well, it's amazing that we have a good teacher who will teach you how, who will show you how to be intentional in your specific life. And so if we are going to engage the spiritual disciplines well, it is going to require a new intentionality out of us. That's the first truth. The second truth is this. Pursuing the disciplines requires a submissive heart. I've shared with the last two services that when I wrote this out, I felt very convicted by it. That I felt the need to write my own name after this statement to remind myself that pursuing the disciplines requires a submissive heart, Dre. Some of you, maybe you need to write your own name as well. Don't write mine, that's mean. But write somebody else's <laughs> name in that. But here's what I mean by this. To be a great student means that you trust that your teacher knows more than you do. To be a great disciple means that we trust that God not only knows more than we do, but that God genuinely wants what's best for us, even more so than we know ourselves. And again, this is where ego comes in. Have you ever found yourself clashing with God over what you felt was best for your life, over a direction, over a relationship, over a sin issue? Have you ever clashed with God over what's best for his, what you think is best for your life and found yourself reverting to a teenager? Where you sit there with God going, you don't know what's best for me. I know my life. This is my life. I would prefer if you just left me alone and would butt out. Some of your parents just had some flashbacks going in with that. The reality is that there are going to be times in which we have a strong, different opinion over what's best for our life than God does. And so the question is, how do we prepare for that? And we prepare by developing a submissive heart because here's what ego does. Ego wants to say that in areas where we should be students, it wants to declare us as the teacher. Ego wants to say that I know everything there is to know about everything about the direction in my life. And if God is going to transform us, that means he's going to change us. That doesn't mean he's going to change us just in small, easy ways, but to completely transform our character means that there are going to be times when God transforms our deeply held beliefs. There are going to be times in which God transforms our deep paradigms, how we've accepted how the world works. There are going to be times when God is going to transform our deepest passions and our desires. And the question is, what do we do when we get into those times? Do we learn to trust or do we, quote, take over? Let me illustrate it this way. I used a similar illustration a couple months ago, but I think it's relevant. Um, I think it's relevant to what we're talking about today. So I'm going to tie it around the NBA finals that just ended. Now, I'm not a big basketball fan myself, but I was really fascinated and invested by these NBA finals. I was fascinated by the fact that it's this fourth year in a row that the Warriors and the Cavs have played against each other. I've been fascinated by the story of LeBron James, who is arguably the greatest of this generation, but people wanted to say, is he the greatest of all time? I went into this series expecting it to be a game seven tight thing going on, and what did we get instead? We got a sweep. The Cavs got swept. That was painful if you're a Cav fan. Again, we have a prayer and encouragement corner near the end. <laughs> but what was incredible about when game four ended 
was within two minutes or so of the game ending, every sports outlet, ESPN, Sports Center, Bleacher Report, Fox Sports West, whatever you had you, had an autopsy on the Cleveland Cavaliers. They had the, this is what went wrong with LeBron. This is what went wrong with his team. This is what they should have done. And as I'm reading this, I remembered a conversation I had in my life group on Thursday night where I was doing the same thing. I was going off very much in Stephen A. Smith style. I was going off on my life group. This is what the Cavs need to do. They need to bench J.R. Smith. They need to pull this person up. They need to free LeBron so he's doing this. And as I'm reading this, as I'm thinking about that conversation, it struck me, who the heck am I? (laughs) Like, who am I to have authority in this issue? My basketball experience is one three-on-three junior high tournament, and I got slaughtered. (laughs) And here I am giving authoritative teaching on what arguably the greatest player of our generation should have done. And I use it as an illustration that we do that in so many areas of our life, don't we? We do that in so many areas in which we should be taught, but we declare ourselves the teacher. And again, we do that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. And so when it comes to being a great disciple, I mentioned on Mark is hunger, and part of hunger is that you are teachable. that your heart is submissive to what God wants best, which is transformation. And so let's unpack this in a key area, in the area of love. See, when Paul talked about the armor, the character we put on, he talked about faith, he talked about love, and he talked about salvation. And so let's think about what this means for us as disciples. See, the love of Jesus is not an emotional Disney movie shallow love, but this is a love that transforms our core character. In fact, the Greek word is agape or agape, which briefly is defined as regardless of the circumstances. So this is the love Jesus has for us. Think about it. He came and loved a race that had rebelled against him. He came and loved traitors. He came and loved us that were in darkness. The love of Jesus is not only radical, but it is defiant. It doesn't make sense. It is regardless of the circumstances. And what's beautiful about the love of Jesus is not only is this how he loves us, but if we are willing to be his disciples, he will teach us how to then love a world the same way. And think about it just by following the 12 disciples. See, when Jesus gathered the original 12 disciples, he was teaching them to be like him, to do what he did, and especially in this area of love. And so one thing we see in how Jesus led the 12 disciples is that he was giving a great model for us in teaching them to love, to be defiant against the circumstances the world says should divide us. So first of all, within the disciples themselves, Jesus called different men that had different backgrounds, that were at different levels of the economic scale, that even had different theologies and different different religious lives. Jesus called them to have a new love for what's considered the marginalized, for the people that were sick, for the people that were poor, for women in their culture, beyond races. And the love that Jesus called them to have was not a love that still looked down upon them, but it was a love that elevated the entire marginalized, all these people the society said are not as good as you to elevate them because God sees them equally as he sees us. Jesus called these men and he calls us to love your enemies, which is one of the hardest commands we can be given, but it is the proof of transformation because we can't do it on our own. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit See, as we see the disciples go about their lives, we see them encounter enemies. We see them encounter political enemies. We see them encounter social enemies, religious enemies. And we see them going, should we fight? Should we war? And Jesus says, no, we love. In fact, he showed this by in their 12, he called an enemy to be one of the disciples, a tax collector who was a traitor to the Jewish race, who was a political enemy working for Rome. This mattered so much to Jesus 
Jesus that he made them part of the family with an enemy. And he taught them how to love. You got to understand, there were times when the disciples were called to love and they didn't want to. There were times when the disciples were called to love and they didn't feel it was deserved to. There were times when the apostles were called to love and they were saying, no, I'm better than that person. Why would I do that? There were times when they pushed back. There were times when they argued. There were times when they failed colossally. But what we see over and over again is that we have a patient teacher. And when it comes to having a submissive heart, it is not so we live in failure but so that we experience more transformation. And so think about that. Reflect on that a little bit. Is there an area in your heart in which you are not being submissive when it comes to this command to love others as Jesus does? Is it an area of enemies? We live in a world where we have often declared many political enemies or organizations to be our enemies And I'm not saying that you don't have strong opinions or you don't even, or that you need to endorse the organization or the person, but are you allowing God to teach you how to love regardless of the circumstances? Is there an area in your family in which you need to learn to love in a brand new way? Is there an area of hurt in which you need love to repair you? Is there an area in which you look down on someone? Maybe because of what you see on the news. Maybe because of images that you're seeing. You look down on someone or a group of people for whatever reason and you need the Lord to change your view of love towards them. Christ follower, are you willing to become a great student by going before Jesus and asking him to teach you how to love better? You know, I heard one of my favorite preachers say this once before, that I don't mind if people disagree with me. What I never want said is that I didn't love them. And that can only happen through the transformation of Jesus. And so, as we reflect on that last point, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close our service, we're going to go ahead and sing a song that we've been singing over the last several weeks and months. And it's a song that's really captured my heart. And what I love about it for our purposes this morning is there's a specific line in the song in which we declare, Jesus, all you are is who I want to be. Think about it. That is the cry of a disciple. That is why we engage in spiritual disciplines because we want to be more like Jesus. And so as we go into this time of worship, Rocky Peak, Christ followers, disciples, let that be our prayer. Let that be our declaration that Jesus, who you are, is who I want to be. I am ready to be taught by you. I am ready to be corrected by you. I am ready to be transformed by you. Let us leave this place with a new passion to know more, to grow more, to be more like our king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are our teacher and we joyfully are your students. Father, you don't simply just teach us knowledge, but you transform us. You show us how to live. You show us how to walk after you. You show us how to put on your character as our armor. And so, Father, as we sing this song, we declare that line to be true, that who you are, all you are is who we want to be. Father, let us not just be mere words coming from our lips, but let us be the cry of our soul, the cry of our hearts, the cry of our identities. Let us be a beautiful cry that who Jesus is is who I want to be. Father, let us have the joy in the fact that you answer that prayer. When it's sincerely said, you answer it. You transform. You teach us. It's not about having all of the answers at this point. It's not about knowing how we're going to do X, Y, or Z in our schedule, but it's about the fact that we have a perfect teacher. And so we declare your truth. We are open to being taught by you, Father. Teach us more about being intentional. Teach us more about being a submissive attitude. Remind us of the why that it all leads to transformation. In your son's name, amen.